You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, my co-host Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have Hargreaves Lansdowne, Barrett Developments, Carnival, Burberry, J.D. Weatherspoons, and our U.S. company of the week is PepsiCo. Sam, do you want to kick us off with Hargreaves Lansdowne? I certainly do. So Hargreaves Lansdowne, a company I own to my regret, as it's down about 40%. That's after, no spoilers, but that's after today's 8%, 9% bump. Oh, no. <laughs> well, it was down 49% when I woke up. So <laughs> for me, it's a win. So they have come out with a trading update. And they have said... The, the trading update relates to the three months ended June 2023, so their quarter four. They've said net new business was $1.7 billion in the period, which is up 6% on the previous quarter. Closing assets under administration was $134 billion, up 2% in the quarter. And they had net client growth of 13000 in the period, taking them to 1.804 million clients. As part of his statement, Chief... Executive Officer Chris Hill has said the improvements in the previous quarter, including the launch of the new Cash ISA, three new portfolio funds and price reductions on our ISA and JISA accounts, were further enhanced with the removal of fees for dividend reinvestment and regular monthly investing, along with the addition of new partner banks to active savings. Amongst the trading performance, I've said active client growth of 13,000 with client retention at 92% up from 91.3% last year. However, that is lower than AJ Bell's 95%. Asset retention was 89.7%, lower than last year's 91.5%, but that's as expected. And it's continuing the trend scene for much of this year, where across the market, specific cohorts of clients are making cash withdrawals to fund cost of living increases. Closing assets under administration was $134 billion, which was a £300 million mark, positive market movement, combined with $1.7 billion of net new business. Share dealing volumes have averaged 685000 in the quarter, 11% lower than the previous quarter and 12% lower than the prior year. Investor confidence across the quarter has been low with cost of living issues, rising interest rates and market volatility impacting deal volumes. So in terms of the total active clients, that's basically flat, really. So a year ago, it was 1.737 million, and now it's 1.804. Share dealings down, as discussed, and active savings. This is quite interesting because they launched a cash ice cash ice in the last quarter. A year ago, their active savings accounts totaled 4.6 billion. It's now 7.8 billion. I've noticed as well in the last year or so, they've started pushing their own funds as well. They've got $62 billion invested in funds, and that compares to $8.7 billion in Hargreaves Lansdowne funds. So depending on how successful it is, and that is growing, it's a bit slowly, but I guess that's against, it's harder for it to grow because, like they say, they've got more withdrawals in terms of people taking the cash out, but it is up slightly from 8 to $8.7 billion compared to a year ago. So as mentioned, the shares, I think this might be hot off the press. Yeah, it came out today, this. Uh, we're not normally this proactive, but this came out today. The shares are up 9% today. I don't really understand what in this 
trading update is leading to the shares to increase 9%. Other than price was already pretty low and the expectations were probably low. So it's probably exceeded low expectations because there's nothing. This is fine, but there's nothing in there that's inspiring me as a shareholder. In terms of the valuation of the business trades, a P ratio of 16 and a half, and there's a dividend yield of 4.34%. So yeah, as mentioned, as a shareholder, I think these results are fine. I do regret purchasing shares. I've held them for a good few years now. It must be at least three or four. I thought they had a stronger position as market leader, and although they have a, they have a very good position, you've seen them fees are getting chipped away and they're coming down on fees they are maintaining the clients but it is at the cost of fees so now it's the revenue is about double what it was seven years ago for example the operating profits only a little bit higher it's not they've not been able to increase the profits in line with revenues because of that pressure on fees even though the clients number of clients have not really had any drop off so yeah john what are your thoughts on this trading statement and the valuation i didn't think it was too bad overall i do wonder whether part of the market reaction may be more because the inflation numbers are out today and it's slowed to 7.9 percent in june quite a lot of other stocks are up so whether that is you know the reason behind the boost i appreciate it's coincided with hargreaves update i think as a company i'm still not desperately keen and part of the reason is because i think it the industry is largely commoditized, or there's more commoditization than we might originally have assumed with it. And we being the, me, uh, well, you know, it, it, it as an assumption as part of the investment case for it. And now that is sort of coming through. I mean, as a customer, because you use Hargreaves for most of your stocks, you are benefiting from the fees coming down. But I appreciate as a shareholder, you're not. I've probably lost more in the decrease from my shares. <laughs> <than> I've <laughs> saved in fees, though. Okay, there's, it, it, it's a, it's a, yeah, a, a silver lining, maybe. But that that's always been my concern with it. And with AJ Bell too, although I, I know AJ Bell had the slightly more toppy valuation. So I don't know. It's probably not one for me, even though it's not hugely expensive for those reasons. But time will tell and whether they can get, you know, improve the margins once again or not. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the cash ISA. But if inflation does cool and interest rates do come down, that's, that's not going to be a long, you know, a longer term solution to it. So yeah, I, I would I would leave it alone. Right, should we move on to an industry that you are unable to leave alone? Yeah, uh, yes, that's right. So house built the house building sector. Barrett Developments, one of Britain's largest house builders, had their full year trading update out last week with a thirty two percent fall in sales, reflecting a tough mortgage rate environment and interest rates continuing their upward trend. The close of the help to buy scheme and a forty nine percent decrease in first-time buyer reservations. Total forward sales as of the 30th of June were £2.2 billion, down from the £3.6 billion a year earlier. Building cost inflation remained at between 9 and 10%, but that is expected to cool down to around 5% in the current financial year as the housing market slows down. 
The group's net cash position was broadly flat at £1.1 billion, reflecting roughly a £300 million reduction in land spend, which helped offset the completion of a £200 million share buyback programme. Last year's underlying pre-tax profits are expected to land in line with the market expectations of around £880.6 million, down from £1.1 billion a year earlier. The group is expected to deliver total completion in a range of between 13,250 and 14,250 this year, down from 17,206, as significant macroeconomic headwinds are expected to impact the consumer confidence and spending. In terms of valuation, the group has a market cap of just over £4.4 billion and trades at 0.73 times forward price to book compared with a 10-year average of 1.2 and it yields a prospective 5.8%. Again, I think these results were disappointing, but more or less what we were expecting, as with the other house builders that we've covered. It's a cyclical industry. They're certainly in a much stronger position than they were back in 2008. They've got a very decent cash position. And again, I would make the investment case for them with the long term structural trends in the UK that we've got a shortage of houses and not enough supply. All political parties are committed to addressing that. And whilst interest rates are higher at the moment, hopefully with inflation falling, we'll see those come back. And whichever political party is in in 2024, 2025 are likely to be getting these house builders in as part of the solution, which ultimately will mean more money for them. But it's going to be a bumpy ride for sure. And we don't know where the economy is going or the macroeconomic situation is going in the next year or two. I think if you're prepared to take the long term view, there's a lot of value to be had in these shares. But it would be, like I say, you'd be in for a bumpy ride. So I don't have Barrett, but I do have Redrow. I'm very happy holding it. And we'll see over the next five years whether that was a sensible move or not. Sam, what are your thoughts on this trading update and the house building sector at the moment? It's interesting that in terms of the completions, it's lower than the drop in sales. I know they've they've eaten into the forward sales and they're down to 2.2, but I think they're still in an all right position if you compare this to... 2008 for example i think they do need inflation to cool down because you need that knock-on effect on interest rates i just i agree like i do every time that long term this this is a very good industry to be in because we don't build enough houses we have an undersupply of housing in the short term in terms of the pricing i don't know at what point it's going to feed through into the drop in the prices because thus far we haven't seen that at all really i know the market slowed down compared to where it was 18 months ago but all it's done is slowed it's not dropped really by any noticeable level so i do think in the short or medium term i don't see inflation going back down to two percent anytime soon and i think if it doesn't and the interest rate is going to stay at four, five, six percent. People, the houses are so expensive that 
at some point it has to dry up and the prices have to start to drop. Now, thus far, I've been completely wrong with it, but I do find it, it's just really interesting to watch because I, I can't believe we've not had a drop in the housing market yet. It's It's been incredibly resilient, but I would think at some point it w- would break. So you, industry potentially interested in, but you think that there's essentially further to fall on the basis that with interest rates as high as they are, as that feeds through for more people ending and having to remortgage on fixed terms, that a lot of people aren't going to be able to afford that. Well, I don't think the house builders will be as affected by the people remortgaging. I know there will be some, but I think most people who buy a new home are they had historically been a lot of first-time buyers. I think it's the first-time buyers coming in. I think a lot of them do get the newer homes, particularly the cheaper ones. So not essentially, okay, so the new entrance to the market not being able to afford and therefore prices falling. Yeah, because it's, I don't know, I just think like, it depends where you are in the country as well, but the, the prices are incredibly high. And, when interest rates were at zero one percent, you could kind of make an argument for it. But now we've got interest rates at five percent, and the prices are the same. And it's it's kind of like well, like most people aren't on salaries where they can afford to have a property that's where they've got that little equity in because they've gone and got it on a five percent deposit with a five percent interest rate. It's just people cannot. Maybe they can, but I think. Most people, like in their twenties, just simply cannot afford it. Now, in the long term, I like the industry because we we don't build enough houses. But in the yeah. short to medium term, I know it is a macro prediction, which I'm absolutely appalling at. But I just don't see where the prices go, but down unless they mm-hmm. stagnate for years. But well, it's just common sense, isn't it? If you've got a property that was pretty pricey at 1% interest rate and we go to 5% and it's the same price to buy that kind of that equivalent property as a first time buyer you can't do it yeah yeah that's why we love house builders it's always something to talk about so would you on that basis would you you would avoid at the moment well no because you've got not necessarily I think if you're taking the very long term view because you're getting in at quite a cheap price and yes, mm. there might be some pain in the next few years, but these are pretty cheap businesses and how much of that is priced in. And they're, getting, yeah. they're paying a good dividend. And I don't think they're quite at the point where the dividend's really like under any pressure. Yeah. So it depends. It depends what your view is. But if you're just buying it for a good income and you don't mind a bit of pain in the short term, you've kind of got to buy it in these kind of scenarios to get the attractive price. Because in five, 10 years, if we're back at 2% interest rates, for example, housing prices are really high again, everything's selling. They don't need to advertise on right move again because they're just yeah. selling so fast. You're not going to be able to get it at the same price you're getting it today. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you have no house builders in your portfolio? I do not, no. Okay. Okay. Should we move on to yeah, yeah, another pressed value yeah. business? Yeah. Oh, goodness. It's about it, where the comparison it, ends. It's painful going through it, but do do enlighten us, Sam. Yep. So Carnival, the cruise company, they have come out with their second quarter results. 
And these figures are in dollars, but it is listed on the FTSE 250. Second quarter revenues more than doubled to 4.9 billion, an all-time high. The main driver was ticket sales, but on board and other revenue also grew sharply. Underlying cash profits of 681 million was at the higher end of previous guidance, but at the bottom line, Carnival remained in loss-making territory. One contributor to the losses was the increase in interest expenses from 358 to 522 million. Underlying free cash flow was 625 million compared to an outflow of 487. Net debt was 29.2 billion, a reduction of 1.3 billion since the year end. Looking ahead to the full year underlying EBITDA guidance, looking ahead to the full year underlying EBITDA guidance now stands at between 4.1 and 4.25 billion, a midpoint increase of 175 million. The company noted a continued acceleration of demand, but Carnival also guided higher on cruise costs due to factors including a slowdown a slower expected ramp down in inflationary pressures than previously estimated. It's interesting with this business because they do really like to give you the EBITDA. But obviously the EBITDA is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation. Now, if I was management and wanted myself to look good and my net debt was at $29.2 I'd probably want to give the earnings before the interest as well. But yeah, it, this is actually loss-making, despite how wonderful the EBITDA is because of the amount of debt they had to take on as part of the pandemic. However, they are moving towards newer, larger and more efficient ships, which should hopefully give margins a push in the right direction as passenger numbers continue to recover. They've had record bookings, which has given management the confidence to promise full ships in the key summer season and positive underlying free cash flow for the year. And for... 2024, analysts expect the strong momentum to continue with operating profits predicted to rise 77% to over 3 billion off net revenue growth of just 10%. It's interesting in terms of like buying the ships and stuff. It's, it's very similar to airlines, this business, especially with the investor returns as well. But net debt is currently sitting at seven times the underlying EBITDA guidance. Now, as a rule, once to get over four times operating profit, I get pretty uncomfortable. And even on four, I don't like it. Seven times is just insanely high. It's got a huge amount of debt. Interest rates, as we have just discussed, are going up. And that debt is getting harder and harder to service. They are losing money after interest payments. And that is reflected in the price. There is no dividend. So there's no dividend yield. Which is quite nice. At least, at least we've got a business that's in that much debt. They've stopped borrowing to pay a dividend. Got a forward price to sales of 0.1, and that compares to a ten-year average of 0.4. And we can't give you a PE because there's no earnings. I don't really know what to say to this. It's just I do feel like the numbers speak for themselves a bit. It's just such an unattractive business. Market cap 16 billion, and that's after it's basically doubled in the last year. However, that net debt is just so high. So they prior to the pandemic, they were making operating profits of about three billion a year. And then they've lost basically nine billion, seven billion, four billion in the years after that. But the net interest has gone from 180 million to basically one point five billion. And that's going to be on cheaper interest rates. 
if they get back to pre-pandemic where they were getting an operating profit of about three billion, at the cheaper interest rates, the debt's half of it. If that debt comes up for renewal and the interest rates goes up, they're just they're going to go bust. There's not really. I don't know why you'd want to take that risk on for this kind of business. I know some people do, but it's just not the kind of business I'd ever want to own shares in. John, what are your thoughts? Similar. I just, I don't think it's investable. So it'd be interesting to see what happens with it, but certainly wouldn't go near it. Even if you were trying to look for sort of deep value, I, I, I don't see it. Yeah, I agree. No point lingering then. Should we move on to Burberry? Yes. So a company that I think we both like and you have owned uh, at one point, Sam. I've never owned it, but it's okay. been in a friend's portfolio that I've managed. Ah, okay. We have covered it a few times on the show. They had a trading statement out for Q1 last week with retail revenue up 19%, ignoring the effect of exchange rates to £589 million, with the rebound in mainland China helping sales up 46% there as restrictions eased, and also a strong performance um, from European tourists in the UK. This more than offset the disappointing 8% decline in the Americas, whilst there was a dip in domestic spending there. Outwear was a standout, with store sales up 36%, led by the Heritage Rainwear, and leather goods were also up, but by a more modest 13%. The group reiterated guidance and remains on track to deliver low double-digit revenue growth in 2024 and around 20% underlying operating margins. They continue their strategy moving further up market and are commencing a further share buyback with the full £400 million, which is expected to be completed by the end of the calendar year. In terms of the current valuation, Burberry has a market cap of £8.27 billion and trades at 17 times forward earnings with a yield of 3%. I thought these results were decent and certainly very encouraging to see the strong recovery in China. And I would argue that that is the exciting part of Burberry, that it is so popular in Asia. And that's such a big growth market. And when you're a popular brand over there, it's you know the long-term picture I could see as being very bright um, with that sort of emerging markets play and British listed company. It's not cheap, but I think it probably does warrant it with those growth prospects. Slightly more modest in the guidance, but yeah, I I do like this stock. Will I pay up seventeen times forward earnings? I'm not sure. It's it's still on my watch list. I haven't pulled the trigger just yet. But the more we look at it, the more I like it. Sam, as keen on Burberry as you once were? Oh, I bought it in the portfolio I was looking after just because the Asian side was very good. We'd covered it a couple of times on the, on the show and they were, they were taught, they were, I felt like the, when the management were talking about it, it's, they were giving you lots of encouragement. It seems to be recovering from, I don't think it did that badly in the pandemic, did it? Oh, it it, it did fall off a fair bit. No, but I thought in terms of the revenue, I thought it was a bit more resilient than some of the other stuff. So I initially bought in the portfolio as manager. I was thinking almost like, well, if they can unlock this brand, we've seen other companies put up much better figures. And it is popular in Asia. 
which is a huge, huge market. It's kind of like if you've got this kind of brand and you want it to be popular anyway, you're probably picking Asia because it is the growth market for these kinds of brands. And then I had it in the portfolio for a couple of years and the share price recovered from the pandemic very, very quickly. And it probably recovered much quicker than the actual results did. So I got rid of it on that basis. And then we've covered it in the show for a couple of years. And I've always felt like the results have been a bit lackluster compared to some of the other brands that we've covered. And I just never felt they were quite putting up the figures that you would think a brand like Burberry would be capable of. And this is the first time we've looked at it where I think, actually, you know, that's a cracking quarter. I think 19% revenue growth is fantastic. If they can do that for two or three more quarters, I don't think you'll be seeing it at 17 times earnings for long. I think it's going to start moving to a 25 PE or something like that or a 30. But at the minute, I think it it's almost the market reaction has been a bit muted to it. I think that's partly because it doesn't have the track record for consistently delivering these kinds of figures. But if you can do this two or three more times, I think you're going to start seeing the multiple change on it. But I think this yeah. is a very, very good quarter and the best one I've seen from them. Yeah. Do you think part of that is due to China being slower to unlock and therefore the results didn't improve as quickly because they had the sort of zero COVID policy compared with, you know, what people might have expected immediately sort of post-pandemic? Could be. I'll just have a look at the revenue. It never it never dropped off hugely. So to the year the year to March twenty nineteen, revenue was two point seven billion. Twenty twenty, which is just before the pandemic, it dropped to two point six. But I think that March included the first lockdown, so that's probably why. Then the next year, which is basically a year of lockdowns, it only drops to two point three four, which is not horrendous. And then last year, the year to April twenty two, it's then two point eight billion. And then in the year to April 23, it's at 3.1 billion. And the operating profits are higher than they've ever been as well. So they are at 657 million now compared to 437 million pre-pandemic. So I don't know if it is slower to unlock that. There's got to be some growth in there because it's well above the pre-pandemic figures. Yeah, yeah. So I think they are just actually doing a decent job. I know they had the CEO that came in like a year or so ago and he felt like they were discounting too much and he wanted yeah, to premiumize yeah. the brand a bit more. And it looks like that is being successful. Would you consider shares again? I don't know. I think my biggest sticking point now is would I want Burberry or would I rather pay up if I was going to get this kind of company? Would I rather pay up for Louis Vuitton? <laughs> I thought you might say that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of like, do you want, it's an extreme example. Would you rather own PZ Cousins or Nestle? Yeah, yeah. I no, I do, I do, I do take your point. The problems that. are price, but I just, I, I don't know if I'd want Burberry because it's not. Yeah. I don't feel like it's the top dog. Yeah, which uh, it, it, it isn't. But I suppose that it is reflected in the price. But is that is. cheap? Is that cheap enough? I yeah, a, yeah, yeah. If we, Fair enough. To uh, another premium brand. Well, in the UK budget pub sector, it is JD Weatherspoons. JD Weatherspoon. So they have come out with a trading update. It's quite a good one, this. So we don't have the normal Tim Martin statement. However, there's other parts of the trading update where you can feel his personality coming through. So 
Well, this means we'll come out with a trading update. And yes, yeah, to do with the preliminary results that are due to be released on 6th of October 2023. So said for current trading, like for like sales for the first 10 weeks of the final quarter of the financial year increased by 11% compared to the same period in the last full financial year before the pandemic, which ended on 28 July 2019. Year to date, sales increased by 7.4% compared to the same year. Compared to the 2022 financial year, like for like sales increased 11.5% in the fourth quarter today and by 12.9% year to date. And they said for the property, in the financial year to date, the company has opened three pubs and sold, closed or surrendered to the landlord 28 pubs. 15 of these pubs were leasehold, where the lease had expired or where the company had exercised a break clause in the lease. In respect of 12 of these 15 leasehold pubs, the company had another pub nearby within a radius of about one mile. As regards the remaining 13 pubs, 11 of these had another Weatherspoon pub nearby. Financial position as at 9 July 2023, the net debt was 688 million, approximately 114 million lower than we reported in our interim results for the 2020 year immediately before the pandemic. Since then, the company has invested $116 million in new pubs, $82 million in freehold reversions, and has raised the equity approximately $240 million. And then they've got a statement on COVID-19, which is always fun to read, because it could be the last COVID-19 Weatherspoon statement we ever read out on this show, in terms of they're, they're over those figures in this year for the first time. So they might stop talking about it in future trading statements, which will be missed. So in the COVID-19 statement, and this is where I feel like Tim Martin's personality does start to shine through. The UK economy is at a crossroads now, following the various lockdowns and restrictions. Some witnesses to the government's official UK COVID-19 inquiry, including the former health minister Matt Hancock, appear to believe that tougher lockdowns and restrictions might have produced better results. In our view, this is contrary to the evidence. Peru, for example, which had the longest and harshest lockdown, appears to have had by far the worst outcome. In contrast, Sweden, which did not lock down, had superior results to the UK and to many, if not most, countries. These issues were discussed by Professor Francis Ballow in The Guardian and Professor Robert Dingwall in The Telegraph, following the publication of a World Health Organization report in 2022. And they've included a link for anyone that wants it. There is a legitimate question as to whether the COVID inquiry, through its terms of reference and through the amassing of a colossal amount of evidence, taking years to assimilate, will result in the obfuscation of the essential question as to whether the lockdowns and restrictions produced beneficial outcomes, whether they had positive effects on health, even disregarding wider economic factors. And then they've they've moved on after that. So we're not commenting on the COVID-19 statement. We just thought that it's worth reading out because they were by far the most, most vocal in terms of their comments in the trading statements and the results throughout the COVID-19 period. So they've also included a section on price, quality and myths. I'll just read some highlights from that. Since Weatherspoon prices are lower than average, some commentators assume that quality or service standards will also be lower than average. However, in the crucial area of beer quality, for example, Weatherspoon had more pubs, 200, listed on CAMRA's Good Beer Guide 2023 than any other company. Weatherspoon also has the best results of any substantial hospitality company in respect of local authority scores on the door schemes, run by environmental health officers which are designed to reflect adherence to cleanliness and health legislation. In this respect, Weatherspoon has 762 pubs listed on the government's Food Standards Agency website and our average score is 4.99 out of a maximum of 5. 99.1% of our pubs have achieved the maximum score. 
Another urban myth, occasionally reflected in social media comments, is that Weatherspoon has below average employment standards. In fact, Weatherspoon has recently been recognised as a top employer at United Kingdom 2023 by the Independent Top Employers Institute for the 18th time. In this area, for example, Weatherspoon awards free shares to all participating employees subject to a qualifying period. Since the free share scheme was introduced in 2006, 23.4 million shares have been awarded, which equates to 18.2% of all the shares in existence today. 14,000 employees were were awarded free shares in March 2023. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a forward P of 18.9 and that compares to a 10-year average of 17.1. The prospective yield is 0.4%. I think these results are good. I think they're encouraging. I can't knock the results. I do like the business, but 19 times earnings is quite expensive. I know they've got property on the balance sheet that is not currently reflected at the value it's probably worth now. I think some a lot of the property hasn't moved in value since 1999. So it might be that it's higher because people think of the asset values, but I just wouldn't pay 19 times earnings for spoons because they're probably not going to liquidate anytime soon. You're just going to get a very minimal dividend out of it. And if they're not selling the assets, it's almost, I know it gives you some downside protection, but I just think 19 times earnings is quite a lot for this business. So good set of results, but I do find the valuation a little bit baffling. John, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, these are the first set of results since we've started the show where things are are really turning around. It's still not a sector that I'd really like to invest in. I don't see, you know, apart from recovering, don't really see where huge amounts of growth comes from. It's very expensive, and yeah, I, there are stocks I'd far rather own. I wouldn't really dig dig in deeper than that. Like it as a consumer, and it's great for them that the debt is coming down, but the future prospects I wouldn't be that optimistic about. So yeah, not one for me. Right. Well, should we move on to a company that you do like? Oh yes, and um, we've covered it a few times. It's PepsiCo, which as you would expect, is the owner of Pepsi, but does also have a number of other companies or another number of other brands, rather, including Doritos. It's got 23 brands that have revenue of over a billion dollars. So it's absolutely massive and not just on Pepsi. Anyway, they had their second quarter results out with second quarter revenue of $22.3 billion dollars driven by organic growth of 13%, reflecting rising sales in all regions. And sales growth was achieved by price hikes as food and beverage volumes fell by 3% and 1% respectively. Underlying operating profit rose 15% to $3.9 billion, ignoring the impact of exchange rates. This was driven mainly by the price hikes and productivity savings, which helped improve the operating margin by 6.1 percentage points. Free cash flow improved slightly from $604 million to $626 million, as Pepsi paid suppliers more slowly this year. Net debt increased by $3.4 billion to $37.2 billion, and the full-year organic revenue guidance has been upgraded for the second time this year and now expected is expected to rise by 10% compared with the previous guidance of 8%. In terms of valuation, Pepsi has a market cap of $256 billion and trades at 24 times forward earnings. The prospective 
dividend yield of 3%. I thought these were decent results. Disappointing that beverage volumes had dropped, but still decent results. I think it does show the strength of PepsiCo's brands and just how strong that pricing power is. You could argue about um, over the, the drop in volumes, and we've covered a number of consumer goods companies, particularly Nestle, where that hasn't happened. But still, I think the longer term picture is very positive. In some ways, I think it is more desirable than Coca-Cola, which you'd think of as one of the ultimate brands, in that it has 23 brands as part of it, all of which generates over a billion dollars in revenue. In terms of how it's structured as well, it does manufacture some some of the products itself and then it licenses others, which can make a lot of sense. Um, and that's particularly the case that we, we see with AD Bar and Britvic in the UK with Rockstar and Pepsi. I suppose one concerning thing is that the debt is quite high. It's at $37 billion, although I appreciate it's something that Pepsi with its current earnings, you know, can easily, can comfortably pay, but it is on the higher side. I like it a lot. I'm not sure about 24 times forward earnings, but I suppose when you're coming to some of these really high quality companies, as you know, as we said um, before, with them, you don't, they don't come cheaply, and that is one of the difficulties. I like it a lot. Staying on my watch list, I don't think I'm ready to pull the trigger on it just yet. Sam, what are your thoughts on these numbers and Pepsi as a company? The numbers are fantastic. I mean, to achieve those kind of numbers, they must have put the price up by a fair bit. And they've only had 3 and 1% drop-off, so it shows the pricing power these brands have. As long as they don't take the mick, they can go up with inflation. I think it's very expensive. The prospective yield of 2.8 is not terrible, but a forward PE of 24... Even a 10-year average of 21, I wouldn't even want to pay that. But yeah, 24, it's just, they've got to hike the prices by a lot before that starts looking cheap. Because I don't see how else they do it, because it's pretty saturated. <laughs> yeah, just fantastic results, fantastic business. But it's the same issue we've got when we look at Nestle. I just wouldn't, I just don't see how you can pay that for a consumer goods company. I know they keep putting up the results, but... You need to grow revenue at 10% a year for a lot of years, I think, before a 24 PE starts to look cheap. Yeah, no, fair enough. And it's off such a large base as well. That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, that, that, that's, that's true. I suppose you, if you were to make the bull case for it, it would probably be emerging markets. That that would be where you'd see you know, more of the growth coming from. Or you'd hope Maybe, to see more of the growth coming from. Is it going to double revenue with well, emerging yeah, markets? Because that yeah. would bring it down to 12 yeah, yeah, fair enough. Of the companies this week, then Sam, your top pick and your least favourite. What? It's quite tough this week. I think I'd probably go with Burberry for top pick. I think of the ones that actually had good results, I feel like this is a most reasonably priced. I think you would be taking a risk in that. We've yet to see Burberry sustain these kind of results, but that's why you're getting it at a PE of under 17, because if it does this for two or three more quarters, I don't think it'll stay there. Least favourite has to be Carnival. It's just absolutely... I, I don't know why you would... Well, I, I struggle to find a company I dislike more than Carnival, I think. 
What about you? Probably be the same. I know it's a bit boring, but Burberry optimistic about the growth prospects. And yeah, I don't have anything positive to say about Carnival. So, well, I think it's the only one of the companies here that is uninvestable. I'd agree with that. So it makes it rather easy looking at it like that. Yeah. We could do a cruise ship ship special, try and find six (laughs) cruise companies. Let's see what we do. Yeah, that that would be a tough episode, I think. And yeah, very painful as well. But anyway, thank you again for listening and we'll see you again next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.